Section 2 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. Germany and the Empire, 1273-1378, Part 2. Albert's policy was a continuation of that of his father. He left Italy entirely out of account, made peace with Philip of France, and turned his whole attention to Germany. Here his plan was to support the towns against the nobles and keep a firm hand over the most powerful of the princes. His chief danger lay on the side of Bohemia, whose sovereign, Wenzel II, had been elected King of Poland in 1300, and in the following year was also offered the crown of Hungary. Albert was furious, but was saved from violent opposition by the unexpected death of King Wenzel and his only son, the last male descendants of Odokar. Thus ended the Bohemian family of the Primasilides. The crown of Bohemia was elective, and by mixture of threats and bribery, Albert secured the choice of his own son, Rudolf, and hoped thereby to have secured for the Habsburgs another territory of the greatest value. King Rudolf, however, failed to abate the hostility felt by the Bohemians for the Habsburg line, and on his sudden death in 1307, the electors, despite their promises, refused his brother Frederick the Fair and chose instead Henry of Carinthia, a brother-in-law of King Wenzel. The indignant Albert made preparations for an expedition against the Bohemians, but this was suddenly hindered by his own assassination. 1308 the murder was the work of one of his own nephews, cheated, as he believed, out of his rightful possessions by the close-fisted Albert, and encouraged to the deed by many discontented nobles who hated their ambitious ruler. Albert's sudden death again made a break in the line of the Habsburg emperors. A disputed election followed. The French king, whose influence had been much increased by the late emperor's friendship, put forward his own brother, Charles of Valois, as a rival to Albert's heir, Frederick of Austria. In the end, however, the electors were faithful to the almost universal custom of choosing a German, and voted for Henry of Luxembourg, brother of the Archbishop of Treves, who naturally gave him his support. Henry VII was about forty years of age, a man well-skilled in arms, of middle height with fair hair and a fresh-colored face, he was also well-educated and could speak French, German, and Latin. With the new monarch, quite a new turn was given to imperial policy. Henry looked back to the glories of the Hohenstaufen. He determined to revive their claims of universal dominion, and above all their headship of the Ghibelline party in Italy. Thus his reign belongs rather to the history of Italy than to that of Germany, and can be kept principally for the next chapter. One great acquisition, however, he did make in Germany, not for himself, but for his son. Bohemia was not too happy under their King Henry of Carinthia. He was idle and inefficient and did nothing to quell the disorders of the country, which was in open rebellion against him. Certain of the Bohemians turned in their need to the new emperor and proposed to bestow the kingdom on his young son John, on condition that he should marry Elizabeth, a daughter of Wenzel II and the last survivor of the Premislides family. 
This arrangement was accomplished, and John of Luxembourg became King of Bohemia. This done, Henry set off without waste of time to secure for himself the Iron Crown of Lombardy and the Golden Crown of Rome. Henry's Italian expedition left neglected Germany, a prey to rival factions, and sad confusion prevailed when his death at Siena in 1313 rendered a new choice inevitable. The election which followed the death of Henry VII was one of peculiar difficulty. The rights of the seven electors were more or less established, but no provision had been made for the splitting of families and territories into two parts. Two branches of the Wittelsbach stock ruled in Bavaria. There were two Margraves of Brandenburg, and Henry of Carinthia still laid claim to the Bohemian throne, occupied in reality by John of Luxembourg. There were rival candidates, also representing the three leading houses of the time. John of Bohemia, the late emperor's son, was eventually rejected as too young, but that still left in the field Albert's son, Frederick the Handsome of Austria, and Louis, Duke of Upper Bavaria, a warrior of great repute. Delay of more than a year was caused by these complications, and when the election was at last made, the votes were divided between Louis and Frederick, five being given to the former and two to the latter. Neither candidate intended to give way, and both raced to Aachen to secure coronation at the traditional spot. Here again the honors were divided. Frederick won the race, but the town would not admit him, and he had to be content with a ceremony at Bunn, performed, however, by the Archbishop of Cologne, to whom especially belonged the rite of consecration. Louis, on the other hand, was admitted and crowned in Aachen by the Archbishop of Mayence. Civil war followed and was waged for eight years with varying fortunes. The Austrians, Frederick and his brother Leopold, were also hampered by struggles in their Schwabian lands, where the mountaineers were fighting for independence against Habsburg rule. At last, the decisive blow was struck at Mühldorf, 28th September, 1322. Louis the Bavarian had the support of the young John of Bohemia, who was thought by some to deserve the chief credit of the victory. The towns also were principally on his side, and foot soldiers played a prominent part in the fight, a sign of the gradual change which was coming in the art of war. Frederick the Handsome commanded in person on the opposite side and fought with distinguished valor, though overpowered in the end and taken captive. The decisive turn was given to the struggle by the arrival of a fresh troop, which the Austrians welcomed as an expected reinforcement under the young Duke Leopold, but which proved to be an addition to the enemy's forces. Louis remained master of the field, and Frederick was sent as a prisoner to the castle of Trausitz, not far from Nuremburg. Here he is said to have amused himself by carving sticks, and up to the present day supposed specimens of his work were still being sold to tourists in the neighborhood. An old warrior called Schweppermann made himself a name by brave service on the victorious side, and the emperor's words, when food was served frugally after the battle, have passed into a proverb. Jedermann ein Ei, dem frommen Schweppermann zwei. An egg for every man, but two for the honest Schweppermann. Shortly after this victory, another stroke of good fortune helped to extend the Witzelbach power. 
In 1322, Brandenburg fell vacant by the death of the last representative of the Ascanian family and was transferred by the emperor to his own son, Louis. This acquisition, it is true, cost the friendship of John of Bohemia, who had hopes of his own in that direction, but danger from his estrangement was not yet obvious. If Louis hoped for peace and tranquillity now that his claims were secured in Germany, he was very much mistaken. His new enemy was even more serious than the Austrian duke, being none other than the Pope himself. The papacy at this time was closely allied with France, some thought little more than her tool. In 1305, the Archbishop of Bordeaux had been chosen Pope, chiefly by the influence of Philip IV, and from this time the papal court had been established at Avignon, a place which, though not actually French territory, was perilously near the lands of France. Philip must undoubtedly have proposed this change of residence as a means of securing his own control over the head of the church. In 1323, John XXII, the Pope at the time, declared that to him belonged the right of sanctioning an election, that Louis therefore had taken his title of king illegally, and that all his decrees so far were null and void. Going further still, he pronounced sentence of excommunication on the unsubmissive Bavarian, and expecting to find ready support from Bohemia and Austrian rivals of the emperor, proposed a new candidate in the shape of Charles IV of France. But he did not reckon on the growing national feeling in Germany. A wave of indignation swept through the country, and Louis turned the tables on his adversary by declaring the Pope himself deposed on the charge of interference in imperial Italy and for holding heretical doctrines. This quarrel was of rather a different character from any previous dispute. It was complicated by the Pope's relations to France and the consequent international questions which arose, and it was distinguished by the national feeling displayed in Germany, where Louis was supported warmly by the Church, the towns, and the Franciscan order. Encouraged by the attitude of his country, Louis entered on an Italian expedition which opened very favorably. Despite the absence and opposition of the Pope, the Emperor was crowned at Rome. Two excommunicated bishops anointed him, and the crown was placed on his head by lay officials of the city, a ceremony which struck even those who took part in it as strange and doubtful. As a practical demonstration of his full imperial power, Louis set up a pope of his own with the name of Nicholas V, and together they paraded the streets of the capital in triumph. The triumph was very short-lived. Louis's partisans were of no real stability. They dropped away from him. Towns which had received him gladly closed their gates upon him on his return journey. The terrified antipope fled to John XXII, humbly craved for pardon, and was imprisoned. The whole imperial position in Italy was rotten to the core. Louis never freed himself from papal excommunication, though he made repeated efforts and hoped much from the more compliant successors of John XXII, but they had France at their backs, and France was well content to see Pope and Emperor at strife. The struggle had, however, important results in Germany. It led to a declaration of independence which showed the marked decline in papal authority. At Renza, in 1338, 
the electors proclaimed that since the empire depends on God alone, he who is elected by the majority of votes can take the title of king and exercise all sovereign rights, without need of the consent or confirmation of the pope. The German character of the empire was little by little superseding the sacred and international position which had been the ideal of the Middle Ages. The relations of Louis the Bavarian with Edward III were indirectly part of the papal disputes, for the emperor was glad to support the rival of the pope's ally, Philip VI. The English king in 1338 made a visit to Germany and was entertained with great splendor and magnificence by Louis. The two kings were already bound to each other by marriage ties, for the emperor had taken as his second wife Margaret of Holland and Hainaut, a sister of our own Queen Philippa. The chief result of all this parade was the rather empty honor bestowed on Edward of the office of imperial vicar, or representative on the left bank of the Rhine, and this was almost all that England obtained from her high-sounding alliance with the emperor. Louis had more on his hands than he could well manage without assisting English claims in France. During almost the whole of his reign he was at enmity with his original ally, John of Bohemia, he had troubles in Lower Bavaria, Austrian relations were not cordial, his unstable and yet ambitious character was not likely to secure him firm friends and allies. His last efforts at family acquisitions brought him into new troubles. Henry of Carinthia and Tyrol had a daughter and heiress with the very unattractive name of Margaret Maltash or Pokemouth. Whatever her looks may have been, her possessions were of such undoubted value that she had no lack of suitors, and after an unhappy marriage with the second son of John of Bohemia, which was ended by divorce, she was secured by Louis for his son, the Margrave of Brandenburg. A dispensation was required for the new marriage, and this Louis proclaimed on his own imperial authority, an action which stirred up anew the papal ire, whilst there was considerable outcry in Germany itself, where the emperor was daily becoming more and more unpopular. So strong was this feeling that Pope Clement VI had little difficulty in inducing five of the electors to choose a new king of the Romans, 1346, in the person of Charles of Bohemia, son of King John, who lost his life in the same year at the Battle of Crecy. Louis was engaged in raising men and money to meet this new danger, when he was struck down by sudden death in the midst of a bear hunt near Munich, 1347, and left the field clear for the Luxembourg candidate. Louis the Bavarian had passed a long and troubled reign. He had been untiringly active, and his courage and good humor had won him many friends in early life, but he had little real force of character or stability, and his policy was almost wholly concerned with family aggrandizement, so that one after another his supporters lost patience and their belief in him turned to contempt and suspicion. He had failed to establish his power in Italy or to secure his rule in Germany, but he left the Wittelsbach family in a very strong territorial position. Brandenburg, Bavaria, the Palatinate, Tyrol, Hainaut, and Holland were all in the hands of members of that house. The character and career of Charles IV of Luxembourg, who ruled from 1347 to 1375, 
has given rise to considerable disagreement. German historians, as a rule, have spoken of him slightingly. Amongst English writers, Bryce says severely that he legalized anarchy and called it a constitution, and Carlyle is palpably unjust in calling him an unesteemed creature who strove to make his time peaceable in the world by giving from the Holy Roman Empire with both hands to every bull beggar or ready payer who applied. On the other hand, Bohemian writers can scarcely praise him enough, and they thank him for all that is best in their country's history, for, writes one, he broke down the oppressive power of the overmighty feudal lord, restored quiet and security within and without, supported justice and good government, increased the income of the state and encouraged industry, so that in both mountain and valley skill and knowledge spread amongst the people, religion and morality prevailed throughout the land. Perhaps Maximilian I was partly right in calling him the father of Bohemia but the stepfather of the empire. His best work was done without doubt in his own country, but his imperial rule was not so despicable after all, and it was not altogether his fault that the power of the German king became less and less able to compete with the authority and privileges of the electoral princes. Charles's personal appearance was not attractive. He was small, his back was slightly bent, and his head hung forwards. His face was pale with very prominent cheekbones, and his hair and beard were thick and black. He always dressed very simply, and his tunic was kilted to the knee, never worn long and flowing. He was neither a great warrior nor an impressive figure, but he was a clear-headed, prudent man, a hard worker, and a far-sighted statesman. He preferred diplomacy to force, and the substance of power to the show and pomp of majesty. His policy was chiefly concerned with introducing order and stability into the government of the empire, in advancing the welfare of the country, especially of Bohemia, and in aggrandizing the House of Luxembourg, which he hoped to leave in permanent possession of the imperial dignity based on a strong territorial position of its own. Charles had many difficulties with which to contend. His election had not been unanimous and was not undisputed. There were other applicants for the office. Edward III was at one time considered. Albert of Austria put forward claims. Gunther of Schwarzburg, supported by the Bavarian family, was actually elected. The emperor, however, knew how to win over his enemies or to take advantage of any chances in his favor. He hampered the house of Wittelsbach by encouraging a sham claimant to their possessions in Brandenburg, and the elector palatine, head of the family, was won over by the marriage of his daughter to Charles himself, whilst his own daughter was wedded to a son of the Austrian duke to conciliate his rivals in that direction. The Black Death also had diverted the country generally from political disputes. The imperial cities, sighing for order and quiet, were easily conciliated by grants of privileges, and finally the convenient death of Gunther in 1349 left Charles undisputed master of the situation. His next step was a journey to Rome for the imperial crown, 1354. There was no resemblance between Charles's attitudes toward Italy and that of his father, Henry VII. He went for the coronation alone and merely stayed in Rome the one day necessary for this ceremony, 
thus deliberately renouncing any claims to imperial rule in the peninsula and arousing considerable contempt in the italian towns of the north which would readily have welcomed a new head of the ghibelline party his return gave him the opportunity for that part of his work which is best known the formation of a rule for future imperial elections which was drawn up and published in the famous document known as the golden bull 1356 charles it must be remembered was not attempting any great change the practice of election and all its consequent evils were thoroughly established by this time but there were consistent disputes about the actual claim to electoral votes did they belong to the great fiefs themselves or to the great families which held those fiefs or to the imperial offices which members of those families generally filled what was to happen in case of the subdivision of fiefs the splitting up of families the abeyance of offices all these disputed points were made clear by the golden bull elections were in future to be held at frankfurt and a majority of votes alone was to be necessary electoral powers were to be exercised by the three archbishops of cologne mayence and treves and by four lay princes the king of bohemia imperial cupbearer the count palatine grand seneschal the duke of saxony grand marshal and the margrave of brandenburg grand chamberlain not one word was said in this important document either of papal sanction or papal confirmation and thus tacit recognition was made of the german character of the empire and its independence from the control of the head of the church in a sense the golden bull did legalize anarchy as bryce puts it it legalized electoral control and interference but at least it put an end to some of the worst difficulties which had beset previous elections charles had plenty of scope for his diplomatic talents he acquired what territory he could for his family but when friendship was more important than extension of boundaries he knew how to give way with a good grace this was shown more especially in the case of tyrol which fell vacant with the death of the only son of margaret moltach and which he confirmed in the hands of the austrian habsburgs for his own family he gained by purchase and diplomacy the margravate of brandenburg which brought with it a second electoral vote the principal aim of his ambitions silesia moravia and bohemia were already his luxembourg and limburg were in the hands of a brother with the promise of reversion to bohemia marriage alliances gave hopes of future succession in holland hungary and poland germany was almost surrounded by hereditary estates of the luxembourg family charles won a final and very important triumph in the election and coronation during his lifetime of his son wenzel so that he could die with the assurance of having done what Habsburg and Wittelsbach had so far failed to effect in laying the apparent foundation of a hereditary claim to the imperial throne. His last advice to his son and successor was very characteristic. Love God and thy friends, be peaceful. If thou canst gain anything with gentleness, avoid war about it. Show consideration and honor for others have the pope priests and germans as friends thus wilt thou live and die in peace charles had done much even though he had not been uniformly successful he had failed to command respect in italy he had allowed the foundation of a very strong estate between himself and france 
for Burgundy in the hands of the successors of Philip the Bold was to be a danger to future emperors as well as to future kings. He had been forced to acknowledge the Schwabian League of Towns, although so independent a union was really contrary to the Golden Bull. He had helped to bring about the return of the Avignon popes to Rome and lived just long enough to see how this resulted in the great schism of the papacy. Above all, he weakened the territorial position which he had built up with so much care by following the general custom of division amongst his sons. Nevertheless, he left behind him a Luxembourg emperor and a formidable array of Luxembourg estates. In Bohemia, he had founded the University of Prague, reformed the coinage, improved means of communication, encouraged trade, and made himself beloved. His name is still remembered in that of many a town, many a bridge, many a public building. Karlstadt, Karlsbad, Karlstein, and many other places remind the traveler of one of the most important of the Bohemian kings. End of Section 2